Some of you are coming in in the middle of a story that's already in progress. So I want to help everyone get on the bus. Paul was a religious persecutor, an inquisitor, an assassin. He captured and slaughtered Christians. But in the end, he himself was captured by the slaughtered Christ. He was converted. He was born again. He repented and put his faith in Christ. His eyes were opened. He became a new man with a new mission. He wanted to plant churches around the world. And he planted one church in Philippi. We are reading a letter that he wrote to that church 10 years after he planted it. Now, I want to tell you where I'm going before I take you there. We are going to look at one thing, three images, and two gifts. One thing, that's Philippians 1, 27a. Three images, Philippians 1, 27b. And two gifts, Philippians 1, 28 through 30. No ending applications today like I typically do. I'm going to weave application throughout. There was a detective TV show back in the 70s called Columbo. My wife really likes it. I can't stand it. But because I love her, I will watch it. The detective, Lieutenant Columbo, has a very informal interrogation style. He uses his absent-minded persona to lull criminal suspects into a false sense of security. This pesky, pesky detective appears to stumble and bumble his way through the investigation, asking the silliest questions. And the show always turns on one scene. Columbo's interviewing the suspect in his home or at his place of business, and, and finally the questions stop, and Columbo turns to walk away, and the criminal thinks he just got away with murder. But then suddenly, a few seconds later, Columbo turns around, lifts his finger, and says, Oh, there's just one more thing. And he'll continue with something like, Why would your wife have been out on a boat alone when she couldn't swim? Boom! He cracked the case. He always cracked the case. Always the same way, with a turn. Always with the same line. Oh, one more thing. Peter Falk played Columbo and titled his autobiography, Just One More Thing. 30 years later, the CEO of Apple, Steve Jobs, began holding yearly events where he would release new Apple products. And it's crazy how much these unveilings made the Apple stock jump. Steve would wow the crowd with his newest technology. And at the close of the event, Steve would often turn his back to the crowd. And in a theatrical moment of forgetfulness, would sneak in a Columbo-esque, oh, one more thing. And the crowd would go wild. Whatever he introduced next is what your kids would ask for for Christmas. It actually turns out that Steve Jobs didn't take this expression from Columbo. It's not Columbo-esque. It goes all the way back to the first century. It's Paul-esque. Notice the first word of verse 27. Only. The ESV translation, which is what we use here in the pulpit, translates this as only. And linguists point out that this word only, the Greek monos, would be like lifting your finger in a critical, at a very critical point. To make a very critical point. Actually, the Holy Christian Standard Bible translates it just one more thing. So Paul is closing out chapter 1. Then suddenly he turns around, lifts his finger, and he says, Just one more thing. Paul is making a very serious, important, and comprehensive point, and we should pay attention to it. What is it? Verse 27. 
one more thing. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand this because a misinterpretation of this verse could actually damn you for all eternity. What is Paul not saying? If you conclude that Paul is writing to non-Christians, you may think that he's saying you need to live a certain way in order to be saved. Paul is not writing to non-Christians. Paul is writing to Christians, people that have already been saved, people that have already been redeemed, bought, purchased. You don't behave a certain way so that you can receive the gospel. You behave a certain way because you've already received the gospel. We don't work for the gospel. We work from the gospel. We aren't trying to earn acceptance before God. Rather, out of our already acceptance, we must now live in a way that is consistent with the gospel. A legalist reads this verse and says, If I live holy, I can make God smile on me. No, friend. God is already smiling on you, therefore it propels you to live holy. The licentious reads this verse and says, God is smiling on me. I don't have to live holy. No, friend. The gospel excuses no sin. If we're going to live in light of the gospel, if we're going to live worthy of this gospel, we need to know what the gospel is. If we're going to understand what the implications of the gospel are, then we need to understand what the gospel is itself. The gospel is not merely God loves you. Understand it's better than that. It's that God loves you despite of your sin at the cost of his son. And I'm afraid some of you view the gospel like a get out of hell free card. Once you have the card, you're good. You store it away in your, your wallet and pull it out when you stand before God. How cheap, how insulting, how profane. It is inaccurate to think that the gospel is what saves non-Christians. But then Christians mature by trying hard to live according to biblical principles. The gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life. It is the A to Z. We never outgrow the gospel. We grow as Christians only by way of the gospel. The gospel not only saves you, it also sanctifies you. The gospel is not a door you once walked through. It's a room you now live in. So what is Paul saying? He's saying you need a life that matches your faith. The word worthy here means to live in a way that is consistent with the gospel. Consistent with what you believe. Consistent with what you know to be true. Consistent with what you confess. Live a life that fits the gospel. So we have the content of the gospel, then we have the conduct of the gospel. It's, it's easier to say the right thing than to live the right way. The Apostle Paul wants us to understand that the gospel does not set us free to do whatever we jolly well please. The gospel sets us free to pursue God and godliness. You could call this section a quest for godliness. J.L. Packer has a book by this title, A Quest for Godliness, where he walks through the lives of certain Puritans like John Owens, Richard Baxter, and Jonathan Edwards. And his emphasis is this. Those with the deepest theology should live the holiest lives. But Paul, 
in the Corinthian books and in this book repeatedly shows how the gospel rightly works out in the massive transformation of attitudes, morals, relationships, and cultural interactions. Paul finds it necessary to hammer away at the outworking of the gospel in every domain of the lives of these Philippians. You, you need to know the gospel and its implications. Studying the gospel as a lifelong pursuit and working out the gospel and all its ramifications is also a lifelong pursuit. It's something that we're always seeing new applications of in our lives. There is no sanctification pill. You pop it and you're good till the grave. No, I'm not here to give you a pill. I'm here to give you a principle. Sanctification requires personal exertion and deliberate effort along with dependence on God's grace. Tim Keller, who pastors in New York City, kind of, uh, kind of verbally slaps preachers for not doing what Paul does so well in his books. Keller says, Mentally tired after explaining the text, a preacher often defaults to the well-worn ruts of application he has traveled down time and time again in the past. Friends, I don't want to do that. I want you to see the deeper implications of this. So allow me to ask you some questions. How is the gospel affecting the way you work? It doesn't take much to think through how the gospel must transform your business practices and priorities. Everything above board. Everything in step with the gospel. How is the gospel affecting the way you think? How you process and work through conflict. How you receive news and react to cultural hot button issues. How is the gospel affecting your home life? Impacting the rhythms of your home, the conversations of your home, the entertainment in your home. How is the gospel affecting the way you approach the Bible? Contemporary people tend to examine the Bible looking for things they can't accept. But Christians should reverse that, allowing the Bible to examine us looking for things God can't accept. How is the gospel affecting your view of sin? Do you hate it? Does it shred you when you commit it? Do you despise your own sin? Billy Sunday said, I'm against sin. I'll kick it as long as I have a foot. I'll fight it as long as I have a fist. I'll butt it as long as I have a head. I'll bite it as long as I've got a tooth. And when I'm old and fistless and footless and toothless, I'll gum it till I go home to glory and it goes home to hell. I like Billy Sunday. One thing, live worthy of the gospel. Now three images that walk out how to live worthy of the gospel. Behind the five English words... Let your manner of life, behind those five words is one Greek word, polutomai, or politomai, from which we get our word politics or political allegiances. The, word, word, the words together in this particular word, they mean live as a good citizen, fulfill and carry out civic duty. So image number one is a citizen. Let your manner of life means, in the Greek, live as a good citizen. 
And a few Bible translations translate it exactly that way. Philippians prided themselves in the fact that their city was a Roman colony. Having received this honor a century before Paul wrote his, this epistle. 800 miles east of Rome lay Philippi, this little extension of the empire. Philippi was a little Rome. Paul's readers were living in a hotbed of Roman patriotism. And if Rome is all about Latin culture, then we're going to be about Latin culture. Everyone wore Latin togas, spoke the Latin language, listened to Latin singers like Shakira and Ricky Martin. <laughs> That's not true. No, no Christian would listen to Ricky Martin. Now, they, were, they were engulfed in this Latin culture, called their leaders by Latin names, and, and they never forgot their citizenship. No matter how far away they were from the capital, they belonged to Rome. And unlike the United States, Rome did not automatically confer citizenship upon everyone born within its territories. Very few people under the rule of Rome were actually citizens of Rome. Citizenship was out of reach for most. In Rome, citizenship was first reserved for the city's leading families. And we do not know if the members of this local church held citizenship. The jailer likely did because he was retired Roman military. Lydia likely did because she was wealthy, but the former trafficked slave girl certainly didn't. Whether citizens or not, no doubt all the residents of Philippi understood what Roman citizenship entailed. Citizenship conferred privileges, such as exemption from paying taxes, but it also carried certain expectations. Good Roman citizens were highly devoted in their occupation to the betterment of Rome. They lived in such a way that brought honor to the kingdom. And Paul says, I don't care what your passport says. You are citizens of heaven. Here's how the commentator Silver translates this verse. And I quote, Behave as citizens of heaven in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. End quote. Now, when you understand that kind of context, you can easily make the connection. Paul is effectively saying to all of you, be highly devoted in your occupation to the betterment of God's purposes on earth. Be careful not to discredit God's kingdom. Remember the 2016 Winter Olympics held in Brazil? Ryan Lochte, a U.S. swimmer, claimed he was in Brazil and, and he was the victim of a robbery outside of a gas station. Well, the world was going crazy, as the world does. And as the details emerged, it turns out that Lochte and his friends were not victims at all, but actually were heavily intoxicated and vandalized the store. And Americans, when they found out, were outraged at what had happened because they felt the behavior of these athletes reflected poorly on their country, embarrassed the nation before the world. They brought shame on their citizenship. And Paul says... I don't want you to bring shame on your heavenly citizenship. Friends, maybe you're struggling with anger. And it's taken a deep root in your soul. Maybe you're struggling with jealousy. And it's tearing your life apart and the life of those you love. Maybe you're struggling with pornography. I don't know what you're struggling with. But I am not here to tell you, act like good Romans. Remember that you're a, Rome, a citizen of Rome and, and act accordingly. Realize the privileges and responsibilities you have. 
No, I, I'm here to tell you to remember that you're actually citizens of a greater empire than Rome. You are citizens of something infinitely more majestic. You are a citizen of heaven, and Christ is your king, and the gospel is your law. You aren't struggling with any sin that the gospel hasn't already given you the power and resources to overcome. You are a gospel citizen. The gospel dictates your behavior. Paul says, not, not my presence among you. So, so notice verse 27. So whether I come and see you or am absent. In other words, let nothing in your conduct hang on whether I come or not. Image number one, citizen. Image number two, soldier. Notice as verse 27 continues. I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Now it's easy to pick up on the strong military language there. The word standing carries soldiering imagery. The Roman ground troops fought their enemy not as single soldiers, but as densely packed rows, eight soldiers deep. They moved forward in step. They even moved sideways and backwards together by trumpet or voice commands. They were a seamless wall presenting a united front. The Roman shields would actually interlock with one another. And the key was to stay in formation, to strive together in unity. And one author wrote, defeat could result if one soldier broke ranks and allowed the enemy to pour through. If you've ever seen the movie The Hobbit, based off of Tolkien's writings, you'll see this vividly demonstrated by the elves and the dwarves in that battle scene. Paul, in essence, is saying, I want to hear, that's the word he used, I want to hear you're standing together in a united spirit. By the way, Paul had his ear to the ground. He hears what his churches were doing. He wrote to the Corinthian church, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. He heard. He wrote to the Galatian, the churches of Galatia, that he had heard that they were so quickly deserting the one who had called them by the grace of Christ. He heard. To the Thessalonian church, he wrote, Timothy has just now come to me from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He, he heard. And this is the first time that we have a little hint that Philippi isn't a perfect church. Apparently, some among the group were breaking ranks and causing division, disturbing the unity. And Paul writes, I want to hear that your conduct is committed to repairing a disunifying spirit. Uh, you, little local church, stand united, singular in vision. This is actually not unfamiliar in Paul's writings. This theme runs throughout. The local church is called to pursue this kind of unity. Unity doesn't just happen. You can't manufacture it. You cannot have unity in any organization by saying, I'm going to refuse to allow any of you to fuss. Stuff has to happen to cultivate unity. You know this just at your job. The church, the church is more like magnets than a bag of marbles. There's an internal unity among believers. Paul reminds the church that their unity isn't superficial but spiritual. They have the same spirit, the Holy Spirit. He's the source of unity. What can happen when God's people get on the same page? A lot. 
An Ethiopian proverb says, when spider webs unite, they can tie up a lion. Haddon Robinson had a friend who made an, a visit to an asylum for the criminally insane. During his visit, he was surprised at the small number of guards compared to the number of these mentally ill inmates. Finally, he asked one of the guards, Aren't you afraid that inmates will unite, overcome you, and escape? The guard responded, No. Mentally insane inmates never unite. They don't know how. But church, Christians do. And Christians should. Image number one, citizen. Image number two, soldier. Image number three, athlete. Notice as verse 27 continues. With one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Striving in the Greek is an athletic word. You can hear in that Greek word for striving, athleo, where we get our word athlete. It pictures struggling alongside teammates in a competition. Paul is encouraging the church to act as a team, moving with the same desire in the same direction. One commentator called it selfless solidarity. God has designed us as a body to play a role on the team. Pat Riley, one of the NBA greats, is the only person to win a championship as a player, as a coach, and as a team executive. In one of his books, he tells the story of one of his hardest coaching seasons. He was the coach of the famous Los Angeles Lakers who in 1980, won the NBA championship. And they were heavily favored to win the 1981 chip as well with players like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and a rookie named Magic Johnson. Magic Johnson was young, had a nice smile and a winsome personality. The media loved him. And a lot of players felt like they were being overlooked. Disunity and jealousy and resentment among these teammates grew. Team morale collapsed and players began to disengage. Riley made this interesting observation about this terrible season. He writes, Because of pettiness and resentment, we executed one of the fastest falls in NBA history. And it was all because of the disease of me. The disease of me. That's what, that was Riley's phrase when all the players focused on themselves, their stats, their performances, their public image, and the team failed to deliver. Paul tells church members in Philippi, refuse the temptation to disengage. You're on a team, and this team is bigger than you and your hurt feelings. Don't disengage, don't withdraw, don't lick your wounds, get back in the game. Let me ask you, why do athletes practice multiple times a day and go on disciplined diets? Why do soldiers put themselves through difficult training in the state of Louisiana? <laughs> because the prize or goal is worth it. We must engage and contend faithfully because Christ is worth it. The gospel is worth it. Our desire is to live worthy of the gospel. So, as gospel citizens, we will resist any detrimental behavior. So as gospel soldiers, we will repair any disunifying spirit. So as gospel athletes, we will reject any disengaging attitude. 
one thing live worthy of the gospel. Three images, gospel citizens, gospel soldiers, gospel athletes. Now, two gifts. Notice verse 29. For it has been granted. This is a word given. It has been granted, it has been given to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Let's stop there. Before we run to the second part of that rather dramatic phrase, don't miss the first one. Gift number one, belief. Belief. You have contributed nothing to your liberation. You have not saved yourself. In the balance of New Testament teaching, the Father is the great architect of your salvation. The Son is its accomplisher. And the Spirit applies to you the benefits which the Father planned and the Son actualized. What does the Apostle Paul say in Ephesians 2.8? For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Now many people stumble on this truth, this gospel paradox, that man must believe in order to be saved, and that believing is a gift from God. We stumble on that. But, but friends, remember that our final authority is not our own understanding. It is the word of God. And the truth is crystal clear in the word of God. You have a responsibility to believe. Non-Christian, you're commanded to believe. The Bible teaches that faith is a responsibility. When Jesus was talking to his disciples the night of his betrayal, the night before his crucifixion in John 14, do you know what he's doing? He's exhorting them to believe, calling on them to believe in me. Why is he doing that? Because faith is a responsibility. He expects them to believe. You have a responsibility to believe. And when you believe, it's a gift. Now the greatest minds that have walked this planet for the last 2,000 years of Christianity <laughs> do not understand this paradox. We are responsible, yet God is sovereign. And if you're looking to end the discussion once and for all, because you could never serve a God that you could not fully comprehend then I hurt for you. I think better advice would be learn to worship in the paradox. If you struggle with the assurance of your salvation, what a verse. What a verse. If you think that God gives you everything else but faith, and faith is up to you, then you'll never have assurance of your salvation. But when you realize that long before you had faith in Christ, that God set his love on you, and your very first impulses to trust in him were simply the answer of your soul to the prior work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, it changes everything. From your frail, fickle shoulders, the weight of your salvation is lifted and then shifted onto much broader shoulders. The shoulders of God. God doesn't give a gift and then take it away. Once he's gifted belief, dear friend, not even your sin will make him change his mind and take it back. Gift number one is belief. Gift number two, suffering. Let's take a little survey here. How many of you have ever been given a gift you didn't want? Would you raise your hand? Probably from your mother-in-law, right? They are queens of giving gifts that you don't really want. Imagine this invitation. What if I said to some of you, become a Christian and get a gift? 
Come on, become a Christian and get a gift. Great. What, what is the gift? Because the church down the street, they're giving out Starbucks cards. What, so what are you giving out? Become a Christian, give a gift. What is it? Suffering. How many are coming forward? Out of several Greek words available to express the idea of giving, or as the verse says, granting, same word, giving, granting. Out of several Greek words available to express that idea of giving, Paul has chosen the one word that has grace at its heart. The Greek word for grace is, is charis, and you can hear it in the Greek word for granted in verse 29, charisma, charismai, charismai, same beginning, same root. The same grace that came to you to believe in Jesus also granted you to suffer for him. And there are several different kinds, actually seven different kinds of suffering that are spoken about in the scriptures. It's quite a study for another time. But there's the suffering of justice. There's the suffering of discipline. There's the suffering of fellowship. There's the suffering of witness. That's what Job went through. There's the final suffering. There's the substitutionary suffering of Jesus Christ. And then finally, there's the suffering in our text, which is the suffering of discipleship. When Paul speaks of suffering as a gift, he does not mean that God is its author. Philippian pagans who persecuted the church were sinning, and, and God was not the author of that sin. The suffering was their fault, not God's, and God justly held them accountable for it. But God can describe the suffering as a gift from God because God in his sovereignty used that suffering to serve his own good purposes. In verse 30, Paul reminds them, you're not the only ones who suffer. Trials are commonplace. They are the mark of a genuine disciple. They are the gracious gift of God to mature his children. Trials should be viewed then not as occasional guests, but as regular companions. Just because your life is hard doesn't mean God is hard. You are greatly loved. Now, what type of suffering were these believers facing? Well, since these Christians believed in one true God, the Romans called them atheists. And you say, Kyle, that's weird. I thought atheists didn't believe in any God. Well, Rome had a pantheon of gods. And so if you didn't believe in all of them, you were viewed this way. And the readers of this letter would have been viewed by the prevailing culture as weird, as superstitious, as irreligious, and as not good citizens. Which makes sense why Paul says you should only concentrate on one thing, being a good citizen of heaven. Let's just recall those three images for a moment. Hey, citizen of heaven, soldier in the Lord's army, athlete on the Lord's team, verse 28 do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. Paul bypasses the customary word for fear to use a term that evokes a vivid scene of terror. The word translated frightened is found only here in the biblical Greek and denotes a horse rearing back at the sight of a snake. Don't be a spooked horse running off. Don't be a scared citizen looking out the blinds. Don't be a soldier running from the firing lines, leaving your comrades behind. Don't be afraid of the bullies around you. When you're fearless, verse 28 continues, 
This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. When you're fearless, it's a two-way sign. It's a sign pointing to destruction and salvation. Judgment and assurance. First to destruction. God uses his children to write the warrant for those who reject him as savior. And that preview of this end time battle, when all those who are not gods are destroyed, the preview of that end time battle must not make us smug. But it should make us calm in the face of persecution. Destruction and then salvation. It's a sign of salvation. John Knox was a preacher in Scotland who showed remarkable courage. He endured much opposition from the crown. During the dark reign of Bloody Mary, she burned some 280 Christians, including some of Knox's friends. In view of his fearless ministry, one person said at Knox's funeral, Here lies one who never feared the face of man. When saints can bear fierce persecution without flinching, it is an evident sign that they are saved by the grace of God. The peacefulness with which you can endure slander and persecution should be a token of your salvation. And that's the exposition. Now a little plea. Non-Christian, you should believe in and follow this Christ despite the suffering you will face because of it. And you will face suffering because of it. As a college student, Jim Dennison served as a summer missionary in East Malaysia. While there, he attended a small Bible-leaving church. And at one of the church's worship services, a baptism had been planned for a teenage girl. During the service, Jim noticed some worn-out luggage leaning against the wall of that little church sanctuary. And he asked the pastor, why is it sitting there? The pastor pointed to the teen girl who had just been baptized and said, her father said, that if she was baptized as a Christian, she could never come home. So she brought her luggage. My non-believing friend, bring your luggage to the feet of Christ. Now let's have a Christ-centered conclusion. We, like our Savior, should expect suffering. Now to be sure, we don't suffer the same way as Jesus. His death was an atoning death. But our symbol for life and ministry is a cross, not a recliner, not a flat screen, not first-class tickets on an airplane, and not plush golf courses. May this text help us to live worthy of the gospel, even when it's painful to do so. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.